worrying. Tell him he doesn't need to fear the fierce anger of those two burned out embers, King Rezin of Syria and King Pekah of Ramalia. Yes, the kings of Syria and Israel are plotting against him, saying, we will attack Judah. We're going to capture it for ourselves, and then we'll install Tabal as Judah's king. You see, God's message to King Ahaz, if Ahaz had like a, well, put it in simpler terms, if Ahaz had a Pinterest account in his day and time, God would have said to him, don't be pinning stuff up about military strength and fortification. Don't pin up water supply fortification pictures. You want to pin something? Pin this. Keep calm and do not be afraid. So let's keep reading to see why God says quite clearly for him not to be afraid. Look at me at verses 7 to verse 9. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This invasion of Israel and Syria against you, it's never going to take place. For Syria is not stronger than its capital, Damascus. Damascus is no stronger than its king, Raisin. As for Israel, within 65 years, it'll be crushed and completely destroyed. Israel's no stronger than its capital, Samaria. And Samaria is no stronger than its king, Pekah, son of Ramalia. Unless your faith is firm, God says, I cannot make you stand firm. That last verse is very interesting. I like the way that the New International Version puts it. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. I did, in fact, find that on Pinterest. (laughs) Under Meg's account. (laughs) We're going to see today that God's message for Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah is a cluster of three instructions. And they all start with something not to do and then something that we should do, an invitation to do something quite different. And these invitations stretch down through history into our lives today in very practical and specific ways. So you're going to be encouraged in your faith, just like it said in our life journaling reading yesterday in Romans uh, chapter 1. And we've got our new bookmark if you're following along with the Project 345 Uh, You can pick it up at any time, and that's an insert there. So we're starting into Romans, and chapter 2 begins this week. So this is Isaiah's first instruction. Do not be afraid. So that's the do not part. But stand firm in your faith. Sounds really good, doesn't it? Sounds like something you would want on your Pinterest board, or tweet that verse out. But here's the thing. If I'm Ahaz, and I look at Isaiah, Isaiah comes to me and says all of this stuff, I would look at him and say, um, thank you very much, Isaiah, but let's just have a little frank conversation here about this impending attack. Are you completely detached from reality? Like, do not be afraid. I mean, have you read the morning paper? Do you have any clue what we are up against here, Isaiah. I mean, I have the two closest nations in proximity to me, 
actively pursuing plans to wage war against me, and they are stronger than we are militarily. And if that's not bad enough, if the two of them can't wipe me out, Assyria is coming to wipe the two of them out. And so this little venture that you're talking about, do not be afraid. I mean, have you seen Assyria's chariots and horses? Their shields and their bows and their archers and their fortifications and their beards. I mean, these are not hipster beards. These are serious warrior type beards. And you waltz in here with your son and say to me, don't worry, Ahaz, God will protect you, Ahaz. I mean, look around you, Isaiah. Let's be real. What in the world gives you the audacity to even think that you could say, do not be afraid? To be fair, Ahaz has a point. The situation does not look great for Judah. And even Isaiah's prophetic word of encouragement doesn't really seem to help in the face of such immediate and pressing danger. Isaiah says, hey Ahaz, God says do not be afraid. Ahaz, oh really Isaiah? Why is that? Well, God has revealed to me that within 65 years, the nation that's attacking you is not going to be uh, around anymore. Oh, thanks for that. And this helps me right now. How again? But here's the thing that is important for us to remember that I think Isaiah is communicating quite clearly about. See, there's two primary kinds of fear that can occupy our minds and our hearts. The first kind of fear that can occupy us is a fear that we'll call horizontal fear. And that is a a fear of circumstances, a, a fear that is generated in our hearts and our lives by what we can see and who we can see around us. And sometimes we look around us and from what we can see, We have every reason to legitimately be afraid. We go to a doctor and we hear the lab results and it's bad news. We look in our bank account and we think, how in the world am I going to be able to pay that bill? We think about how we're being treated at school and bullying and teasing and think, I, just am a, I don't even want to go back after spring break. Think about the complexity of relationships around you and people that you know and maybe damage that's been done that you're walking into and it stirs up emotional and visceral and very logical responses inside of us. Horizontal fear. And the challenge is that when we look in the scripture and when we hear the words which are evident all through the Bible, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. When we hear or read that, our immediate response, or often my immediate response is, yeah, that's good, but you don't quite understand. I have a very legitimate reason to be afraid. Fear is a very rational response uh, 
to what I'm facing sometimes. And intriguingly, Isaiah doesn't delegitimize that and just say, oh, come on, Ahaz, just get over it. No, don't be, that's just silly. You don't need to be afraid of them. Just, just, just move on. No, he simply places that fear into another context, into a bigger context. And Isaiah reminds Ahaz the king that his fear ought to be driven about his circumstances ought to be driven by another kind of fear. And this is confusing for us because we use the same word to describe it as we use to describe horizontal fear, but yet it has nothing to do with the emotions and circumstances of our lives. And that second kind of fear is vertical fear. Vertical fear is what the scriptures would refer to as the fear of the Lord. A single-minded trust in God's strength. And the Bible invites us over and over and over again to fear the Lord. Proverbs again and again begins by saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when I was little, I thought that meant that it would be a good idea to be scared of God. That fearing God meant cowering somewhere in a corner. And Mike rightly reminded us last week from Isaiah chapter 6 of God's holiness and his majesty and his power and how none of us can stand rightly in God's presence. But vertical fear or the fear of the Lord is not about being afraid of God. It's about reverence of God. And trust about, uh, trusting God. It's about, the Bible commands us to fear the Lord because of who God is. The Bible says to us, you can fear the Lord, you can place your confidence and trust in him because your hope is sure. Because your full hope and confidence for the challenges of this life can rest with full confidence in God because he is trustworthy. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, you will acknowledge him because he can make your path straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Because to fear the Lord is to rightly acknowledge his control over the circumstances of our lives and the world. And then to think And to act accordingly. Even if trusting God and walking in obedience to him doesn't seem to make rational sense in the face of the circumstances that you and I might be facing. I'm reading a a devotional this year called On This Day. And it takes a series of journal entries from various Christians uh, from all over the world and through history. And brings them to life for a given day. And so this week I was reading an entry from John Wesley's journal in 1735. And Wesley was sent uh, as a missionary um, in 1736, 1735 uh, from Britain to the United States to conduct evangelistic meetings. 
And uh, he writes in his journal about the voyage across the ocean. And he said, at seven o'clock, I went to uh, the Moravian Germans. This was a group of believers that were also on the same ship as him. I had long before observed in them great seriousness of their behavior. Of their humility, they had given continuous proof by performing those servile offices for other passengers, which none of the English would undertake, for which they desired and would receive no pay, saying it was good for their proud hearts to serve in this way, and their loving Savior had done so much more for them. Every day had given them occasion of showing meekness, which no injury could move. If they were pushed, struck, or thrown down, they rose again and went away, but no complaint was found in their mouth. And there was now an opportunity trying whether they were delivered from the spirit of fear as well as from that of pride, anger, and revenge. Because in the midst of their service, which they were conducting, the sea broke over and it was as if the great deep had swallowed us up and the mainsail split in half and the decks opened up and a terrible screaming began amongst the English. And the Moravians calmly sang on. I asked one of them afterward, Wesley said, were you not afraid? And he replied, well, thank God, no. And he asked, but maybe your women and children were afraid. And he replied, no, our women and children were not afraid either. Wesley said, why? And they said, because our anchor holds, we are not afraid even of death. See, Wesley was deeply impacted by this group of humble people. They feared the Lord more than they feared their circumstances. Picking up on that nautical theme, one of the translators of Isaiah 7-9 says it this way, trust in the Lord because no other lifeline will hold. In other words, the fear of the Lord or a reverence of God, a trust and confidence in who he is does not delegitimize our fears, but it overrides them. And creates a context for the cares and concerns of our lives. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 12 reiterates this promise. Isaiah says to the people, Do not live in dread of what frightens those around you. Make the Lord of heaven's army holy in your life. He is the one that you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble. Because he will keep you safe. This is what Wesley observed in the life of these believers. They were not afraid of being mocked. They were not afraid of being ridiculed. But even more than that, they were not afraid even of being killed. Now it's all fine and good to say that. But can we agree that it is very difficult to live that out? And God knows this. So God actually gives graciously, offers Ahaz a sign that God will be faithful to his promise. But the exchange does not go quite as we expect it might go. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 14. Later, the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. 
God says to Ahaz, ask me literally for anything, any sign that you want. But the king refused and said, oh no, I will not test the Lord like that. Then Isaiah said, listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God says, Ahaz, I know trusting me is going to be difficult for you. And so I want to give you something to assure you that you can trust me. And I want to give you something so gracious that literally ask me for any sign that you want, and I will give it to you. Because I know this is going to be a tough test of faith. Make it as difficult as you want. And Ahaz says, uh, no thanks. Which may seem on the surface like a very humble and very gracious response. Oh no, you see Isaiah in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 16 and in Numbers chapter 14 verse 22, we're strictly prohibited from testing God. So I'm going to decline, thank you very much, on the sign from the Lord thing. I mean, I just would never want to bring offense to God in that way. I mean, it sounds pretty spiritual, doesn't it? But here's the thing. It's actually God who's testing Ahaz, not really vice versa. God is asking Ahaz to step out in faith and asking him actually to be daring in his faith, to believe something, to believe God for something so significant that only God could do this. And we see this actually in other kings. One, another example is uh, one of the kings asks that the shadow on the steps from the sun would go backwards in on the steps, that it would be a demonstration of God's incredible power. So God says to Ahaz, you know what? Literally ask me for anything like that and let's see, how you're, let's see where your faith is. Let's see what you'll ask me for. Something so big that actually only I could do it. And the fact that Ahaz hides behind false piety and polite wording shows that he actually doesn't believe God at all. Isaiah's first word of instructions is, do not be afraid, but stand firm in your faith. And his second builds on this. God says to Ahaz, do not test me casually, but I do want you to trust me completely. Do not test God casually trust him completely. See, the notion of asking for a sign brings up a good question. Should you do it? Should you ask God for a sign? Another character in the Old Testament by the name of Gideon did this. And you can read his story in Judges chapter 6. God gives Gideon an assignment. He says, I want you to go And I want you to deliver my people from 
the hand of the Midianites. Gideon says, it's too hard. They're a really big army. And God says, I know, I'm gonna be with you. Gideon says, I don't know if we could do it. God says, I will, I'm gonna give you a sign actually um, and let, I'll be faithful. So he sends him into the Midianites camp and God gives two Midianite soldiers a dream, a miraculous supernatural dream that then they relay in Gideon's presence. They say, oh, this is incredible. I feel like we're gonna be wiped out. And Gideon says, oh, thank you, Lord. That was so great. The dream was amazing. Um, just one more thing. Could you just uh, give me another sign, Lord? And in Judges chapter six, he's afraid still. And so he puts out a fleece and he says to God, you know, God, could you make the um, ground around it? Uh, could you make it wet? Or could you make the ground all dry, but the fleece sopping wet? That would just be, it would just be such a strengthening of my faith, God. Could you do that for me? So the next morning he gets up and God graciously does that for him. But the dream and the signs still are not enough for Gideon. And so he says, um, God, just one more time, just, just one more thing. Could you just, could you reverse that sign? Maybe it was chance, I don't know. The dew could have been funny that morning. Could you just make it the exact opposite? Could you make the fleece stay totally dry? And could you make the ground all around it just soaking wet with dew? And then I would for sure know that you want me to go and carry out your project against the Midianites. And actually the second night, God does again what Gideon asked. And so I wonder sometimes if I was Gideon, and maybe if you were Gideon, would the dream and the two fleeces still have been enough for you? Maybe it might have been a little bit like this cartoon. Uh, okay, God, Gideon here, let's try this again. Today, if the fleece is dry, the rock is soaked, and the ground is merely damp, that means the Midianites and I cannot be friends. Meanwhile, you look at poor Gideon's sheep. A lot of fleece to keep putting out and putting out and putting out and putting out night after night after night. But this does give us actually a chance to ask the question, why did God actually grant Gideon's request for a sign and why was he angry at Ahaz? Is it wrong to ask God for a sign? Or did Gideon just catch God on a good day and Ahaz caught God on not such a good day? One of the commentators on this passage, I think, helpfully explains that we should note that most of the signs that God offers to people in the Old Testament, and in the book of Isaiah in particular, are not designed to stir faith up where none exists. They're not some supernatural act that when God does it, on the spot, makes a believer out of the person. Rather, Typically, a sign is an event that occurs in the future that confirms a person's faith exercised in the past. A sign, in other words, confirms faith. It does not create it. So this is one problem that we run into when sometimes we think about asking God for a sign or for direction in our lives. We'll ask God sometimes very casually about it. Oh God, would you just give me a sign if this is the right person to marry? Oh God, would you give me a sign if this or that? And we actually have no intention to follow through on whatever direction God might graciously choose to give us. Because we're really going to do whatever the heck we want and we're going to drag God along for the ride. And then we're looking for some divine sign 
to bless what we've already decided. And here's the interesting thing about Isaiah chapter 7. Because in 2 Kings chapter 16 verse 8, we realize and we read that Ahaz already has made his plan. He's actually already pillaged the temple that Solomon built and taken out all of the precious metals and gold and he's already sent it off to Assyria to try and buy off the king of Assyria to create some time and space and maybe the king of Assyria will come and attack Israel and Syria and get him off their backs. And so he's not waiting and asking God what he should do. He's not exercising any faith in any way. He's actually already struck out on his course of action. And he's asking God if he'll come along for the ride and bless it. See, by already sending all the money out the door to buy military protection, Ahaz has already made very, very clear where he sits on the whole trust in the Lord thing. His trust is not at all in the Lord. His trust is in the money that he sent to Assyria to broker a deal for political stability. And God comes to him and says, Ahaz, I'm going to give you another chance. I want you to ask me for a sign. I want to actually see if you would be willing to demonstrate repentance and faith in me. And Ahaz fails the test miserably. Why? Because Ahaz has missed the point that piety is not the same thing as faith. See, Ahaz's response to God's challenge sounds very pious. Pious is an external appearance of religiosity. While faith is actually the substance of a vitalized relationship with God. Piety is external actions that people sometimes undertake to look religious, while all the while underneath there's nothing there. And in the gospel accounts, This is what upsets Jesus the most. Jesus is most upset with people who are pious in their external appearances, but who lack faith. Pharisees tithe, give to the poor, attend religious services, pray publicly with deep conviction and spirituality and punctuality and regularity, but it's all show. Their hearts are not in it. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes about those who will have an appearance, a form of godliness, an external veneer of godliness, but they have completely devoid of the authentic power thereof. You see, piety is the byproduct of a relationship with God, not the end product. Radical faith in God is the root and piety, things that are external demonstrations of that are the fruit of our relationship with God, not vice versa. Because see, when you love someone, when you trust them, your actions flow out of the love that you have for them and out of that place. As opposed to someone else who simply has external actions all down pat, but who doesn't have a deep and loving relationship with a person. And friends, I think that this might be one of the reasons why in our day and time, so many people are legitimately turned off of religion. 
Because they've seen religious activity and piety all around them, maybe quite close to them, in their homes, in their parents or grandparents, in their own lives, in their friends, in their co-workers. They've seen religious activity, Bible reading, avoiding lust, greed, selfishness, trying to stay away from offensive speech. But you can do all of those things and still not have a genuine, life-changing encounter with Jesus. You can have piety, but lack faith. And friends, this is a tragic possibility that can happen to any one of us. It happens when we focus on the external behaviors. Oh, I got a bookmark today in the info sheet. I better read that through and check it all off. And then I better leave the bookmark out strategically where it could stick out from my Bible so someone sits down to me next week at Sunday could see that I read, you know, at least five of seven. We could go through all of the external motions and lack godliness. And this is where Ahaz is so tragically off base and why God is upset with him when he doesn't actually ask God for a sign because there is no faith that God could even confirm with a sign in the first place. And here's the deep irony of Ahaz's situation. Ahaz would rather place his trust in his ultimate enemy, the king of Assyria, to deliver him from temporary troubles that he has with the kings next door than he would risk Trusting God. And so Isaiah goes on in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 to point out the tragic consequences that are coming because of this forsaking of God. And Ahaz is just the first of many in Israel who will fall away on this point. And this is why Ahaz's refusal of a sign, despite his refusal of a sign, in fact, God says, you're going to refuse a sign? I'm going to give you one anyways. Because as we're going to see as we proceed through the book of Isaiah, things get really, really grim. Look, at me, look with me ahead at a short section of Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. In that time of darkness, in that time of despair, it will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, yeah, they will be humbled. But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with the glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And for those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as when you destroyed the army of Midian. Interesting that God chooses to include this yet again Gideon story in this text. God's first instructions through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel and to us are, do not be afraid, stand firm in your faith. His second instruction is, do not test God casually, instead trust him completely. And lastly, Isaiah says, it's gonna get really, really bad. And when it does, do not despair. 
for God is still with you. See, whether Ahaz is prepared to admit it or not, God is with Israel. And the challenge is, if God is with you and you have rejected God, this is not good news for you. But even in times of darkness and despair in our own lives, God's purpose prevails. God's desire and his heart is to rescue. We read it in Ephesians. He's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. Ahaz and Israel rebel against God. They turn their backs on him just like you and I do. And yet God still comes in his mercy and gives them a sign and a savior to deliver them. The book of Romans reflects on this event and says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And friends, maybe that's you here today. Maybe you think about yourself, you know what? I feel like I'm so far from God that there's no hope for me. There's no picture in my mind that I would be deserving in any way of God's love, his mercy, his grace. I mean, if you only knew what my life was like, the sins that I've embedded in my life and have been embroiled with even this week. But friends, the reminder is not to despair because the truth is that none of us are worthy of God's mercy. The wondrous truth is none of us deserve God's grace, but yet he still sent his son, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, sent to save us, sent to show us the fullness of the father's love for his wayward children. And friend, if you're here today and you don't know that and have not embraced that, my deepest desire and our deepest prayer for you here at Jericho is that you would come to find your story in the place of mercy and know that God desires to be with you. And that's why this text is read at Christmas, because it's a prophetic word of the coming of the birth of Jesus, that God himself will come near to save and rescue and redeem. Goes on in chapter nine, verses six and seven to say, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor the mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and his government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity because the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel, that God is with us. God is near us. God is present right now because of the incarnation and because of the birth of his son Jesus and therefore we do not have to be afraid. And this is why we can trust God completely because not a, God is not some distant force out there in the universe. He is a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we do not fear. He is our source of strength in times of weakness. Therefore, we do not fear. Isaiah reminds us time and time again that God is great and powerful, and yet he's also tender and loving and close enough that he can be trusted with the stuff of our lives. And so as we close 
today, I want to ask you to respond to God in three areas of your life. And the first one is just to ask yourself honestly and directly, what are you afraid of today? I'm not talking here about, I'm afraid of spiders or things like that. But what are you facing in your life, in your circumstances, that when your mind wanders, it grips you with paralysis or fear or worry or anxiety? I mean, some of you need to bring those things that are horizontal fears and bring them to the Lord and say, God, I am giving this to you yet again today. I've been running around expending inordinate amounts of energy and time trying to mitigate against all the bad things happening to me, trying to figure out solutions. And I hear your call today to come to you and yet again place it in your loving and trusting hands so it doesn't paralyze me. I want to bring this fear to you. I want you to just picture in your mind coming into the throne room of God with your fears held tightly in your hands and then just getting ready and coming to a place of opening your hands and saying, God, I am going to give these to you. And just physically even do that as we respond in worship. Say, God, I want to name this fear that's paralyzing me. Fear of the future. Fear of what happens if people would know the real me. Fear of my reputation. Whatever it is, I want to place that in your hand. As Jared and the team come to lead us response in song, that might be your response today. And say, God, I recognize your kingship and your power over all in my life. And this fear has taken me to trusting in places other than trusting in you. And so help me, Spirit of God, to do more and more of that open-handed release to you. So that's the first posture of response, battling fear. The second question is, what do you need to believe God for today? Is there an area in your life that you have tested God instead of trusting him? Maybe an area you've been waiting and saying, God, I just, I'm not going to do anything until you give me a sign. Or like Ahaz, maybe you're pretending that you trust in God, but you really have your own plan all worked out. Some of you are facing big hurdles in your life. And you need to come to God and say, God, I actually am on the opposite end of the spectrum. I don't fear like maybe some of those other people do. I actually am overconfident in my abilities to, I got this one, God. Don't worry about it. It's all under my control. And maybe today God's saying to you, you need to trust me in this area of your life. This tidy plan that you have all worked out, I need you two to release that to me. I think about some who are facing significant mountains, health or financial or relationship struggles, and you need a fresh reminder today to trust in God. And we want to help you walk into that. That's one of the reasons why we always create a culture of prayer response. To stand with you and invite God to stir up faith in your life. People who go for prayer are not those who all have it all together. So that should be all in any of us here in this room. Gary and Betty are going to be at one side. And they're missionaries. They're people who live by faith. They know what it's like to struggle in trusting God. Even in their own family relationships. Even right now today. In this moment. And so maybe for you. If that's an area. That you need prayer in. Then you should go and pray with Gary and Betty. About that today. And stand with them. 
because they're saying, you know what, we don't got it all together either, but let's join in faith and ask God to stir up trust and faith in our hearts. Might be you need to believe God for something small. It's not about the size of the request. It's that you come to God believing that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. As the team comes and we respond in song, the last response is one of worship and praise. Because Isaiah reminds us that the deep waters that God has walked us through should stir something of worship in our hearts. That's why we worship. Because we respond to God with thankful hearts because he has demonstrated his withness and his faithfulness to us again and again and again. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And so we respond not just with sung worship and say, yeah, 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 God, I trust you. Yeah, yeah, God, I believe you. Yeah, I want to love you again. We come again with hearts filled with gratitude and allow that gratitude to flow out of us offering our songs and our worship and song to God to serve his purposes and to encourage those around us. And so I'm gonna invite you to stand with me as we respond in these ways together and we'll sing two songs of worship response as the team leads us this morning. God, we thank you for your gracious love and mercy to us. We thank you that you loved us even when we were far from you and you continue to persist in that love even when we are faithless. God, we need you to stir faith up in our hearts today. I need that. We need that as a church community, Father. Those who are going to Guatemala, those who are facing circumstances in their life and in their family need that touch from you today. And so, Father, we want to not only just express our need, but also acknowledge our gracious thanks to you as the one who has responded to us already in Jesus and by providing your spirit to continue the work in our lives and heart. And so, Jesus, as we respond with gratitude, we pray that you just continue to do your work in our lives and heart and in this community and in your world because it's only by your spirit and only by your grace that any of this is possible. In the name of Jesus, your son, we say thank you. Amen. Let's worship together.